you have a Bible, you can turn in the New Testament to John chapter 20, continuing our New Testament reading through John's Gospel. John 20, verses 19 through 23. Lend your attention, this is the Word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah, chapter 5. As we mentioned last week, the Hebrew versification and the English versification are off, starting with chapter 5. So we'll start in verse 2, which is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew. And we'll read through verse 6. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer. Great God, you are the one who tells the end from the beginning. You have shown from long ago what you had planned and purposed to do. You are almighty, sovereign, creator, redeemer, God. So we ask that even now as we consider this this wonder, 
in some seven centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ. Micah spoke of his day so plainly, so clearly. He spoke of his coming and desired that your people would abound in hope. At the portrait of blessing which you purposed to extend to a people undeserving, ill-deserving. So, Father, we would see our excellent King even now. Your most blessed purposes brought to pass. Your wisdom and your power and your goodness on display in that these things are the fruition of your counsels of old, indeed, in eternity. Bless the preaching of your word, O Lord. Attend my words and attend our hearts, that we may stand in awe of you as our God and Christ, our King, our Savior, our God, our Lord. We ask this in his name, amen. In War and Peace, Nikolai Rostov loves his emperor, Tsar Alexander. As Nikolai joins the ranks of his fellow countrymen on the battlefield as Russia takes up arms against France, Nikolai is so caught up with affection for his sovereign that his fellow, shoulder, his fellow soldiers good-naturedly tease him about it as they enjoy that soldierly camaraderie on the field over drinks. Lancelot loves Arthur. The first time Lancelot saw Arthur, he loved him and his ideal. And from the moment he saw him, he devoted his entire life to that king and serving that ideal. England loved Churchill. During World War II, wherever Winston Churchill went, the people clamored just to get a sight of the great man. They trusted him even as dark, dark night after dark night washed over England's shores. Our own disillusionment with earthly leaders potentially deprives us of something lovely, something delightful. The joy and the delight of being under an excellent ruler, of belonging to a truly magnificent sovereign. There's something beautiful about a good king, isn't there? Would anybody deny it? There are people who would deny it, unfortunately. Do you deny it? <laughs> I hope you don't deny it. For in the denial of it, we lose the wonder of belonging to the most excellent king. A king who was promised from the very beginning. We don't do well with kings, do we? We barely tolerate elected officials. Perhaps the closest glimpse we get of the loveliness of a king is a good father. There's something lovely about a good father, something remarkable about a good father, one who uniquely provides and protects in great self-giving love for his family and for others. I suspect deep down, even the fact that we're so disillusioned with fathers these days attests that we want to love and serve and adore a good king. We want good fathers, don't we? We're just so frequently wrong-headed about the kings to whom we swear our fealty. 
about the kings to whom we ally ourselves. That was Israel's problem from the very beginning, from the very first iteration of king. We need Saul. We need a king like the nations. Even good Samuel, the prophet, fell into a similar er error on his errand to anoint God's choice for king after he had rejected Saul. Whom did Samuel see? It was the firstborn of Jesse, one who looked remarkably like Saul, and he thought, this surely must be the Lord's anointed one. Jesse's firstborn. This has got to be the guy. It wasn't. Saul wasn't the guy. Eliab wasn't the guy. The guy was a nobody. The youngest son, the lowliest, the shepherd out in the field. He was going to be the second greatest king that would come from the ranks of Abraham's offspring. Micah here tells us about the greatest king. The one who was promised from the very beginning. His going forth is of old, ancient of days. A king who had been promised by God, who was going to be that most excellent king who ushered in the most excellent blessing that God had purposed for his people. For he was going to be a king, a king who did not give figs and vines, but who gave life and peace, righteousness, and joy as our good shepherd, as our faithful king. And a king who, unlike Churchill, unlike Tsar Alexander, unlike whatever kernel of truth sits at the heart of Arthur, a king who will not fade, but who will stand forever, and whose kingdom will stand forever as earthly iterations and earthly kings come and go. This morning we consider Micah's reaffirmation of this coming excellent king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has appeared in the fullness of time and who is our excellent king. Now Micah intended this word, this vision of the future, this vision of the coming figure to generate hope for God's people and in hope to generate endurance for Israel in the face of all manner of difficulty which was besetting them. The prayer this morning is that the Lord might grant to us a similar glimpse of this most excellent king with a similar effect in our own hearts. Hope, a longing to see him face to face, and a perseverance in the darkness and the difficulties which attends our days until the dawning of Christ's return. Mm. Let's consider this king. First, he is a gentle and lowly king. Second, he is a king mighty to save. So first, he is a gentle and lowly king. That's how the passage begins. It's an unassuming, quiet start. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is born to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You can think of our own earthly rulers and feel something of the 
the jarring picture this would have been. Our own earthly rulers, equipped with their big degrees from prestigious institutions, their big wealth in the millions and the billions, their ancient families which go back to the very beginning. These are the tickets to power and leadership, mostly. Micah says there's a coming king whom God promised from long ago. That seems to be the best way to take who's coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This is the promised seed of the woman. This is the promised seed of Abraham. This is the promised seed of David who all converge into this one figure, this king that I told you about from the very beginning who is going to usher in unparalleled blessing for his people, indeed unparalleled blessing for the nations, and indeed whose cosmic warfare would take place as he crushes this ancient dragon who would sit upon an eternal throne. This is the one. This figure is coming. God has not been unfaithful to his promises, though you, O Israel, have been unfaithful to your God. God has not abandoned his purposes. But he's not going to be like your king with their pomp and their circumstance. He's not going to hail from Jerusalem, the great city. He's going to come from Bethlehem. Unimpressive when considered against the great cities of the world, even at that time. Children, do you know the city that you were born in? This was a source of great shame for me when I was a little tyke. I remember growing up and all my friends said, I was born in Chicago. They wore it with pride. Arrogant little titans. (laughs) I had to tell everybody I was born in Harvey, Illinois. That's right, laugh if you will. (laughs) I was always so embarrassed. Harvey seems pretty pathetic next to the great city of Chicago. All your friends claiming a noble birth. And I in some backwater town. (laughs) Bethlehem was far more like Harvey than Chicago. Insignificant, small, Utterly unremarkable. But God doesn't consider things like we do. The great things among us are so often insignificant in the sight of the Lord, if not an outright offense. Our claims to fame are paltry. A flower of grass. (laughs) If Bethlehem was famous at all, it was as the birthplace of King David. But ultimately, David's house wasn't in Bethlehem. It was in Jerusalem. That's where he took up residence. That's where he settled down. Jerusalem was the royal city. Jerusalem was the grand city. It was the seat of the palace and the temple. What have we been hearing about Jerusalem? She's become proud. She's become pompous. She's become unruly. She's become violent. She's become presumptuous towards her God. In fact, she's become very hard to distinguish between Nineveh, Nimrod's seat of old, the ancient kingdom of Assyria. It's easy to begin to presume upon grace, isn't it? It's easy to begin to mistake God's gifts as that to which we are entitled and from which flows a host of iniquity. And yet God had not forsaken his promise. He had promised David a kingdom and an heir. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And my faithfulness to the household of David is going to look like a new start. Back to the humble origins 
back to the shepherd boy from the backwater town. And something new is going to burst forth from that. David came from nothing, and I made him great, so that all would know that salvation came from the Lord. Isn't that what's so plainly on display in the David versus Goliath episode? I've been reflecting a lot upon Michelangelo's sculpture of David. 17 feet high. A perfect specimen of physicality. I look at that sculptor, I'm like, well, no wonder this dude beat Goliath. (laughs) Michelangelo got beauty, but he missed the text. (laughs) The pure, perfect specimen towering 17 feet high with a body like a god. That wasn't what Israel would have saw when David rolled up to beat Goliath. David rolled up to beat Goliath so that all would know that salvation belonged to the Lord. (laughs) The youngest son was exalted so that all would know that it was God's purposes to elevate the lowly, even as we read this morning, taking people from ash and causing them to sit with princes. He says, my coming servant shall come from nothing, and I will make him great, so that all will see that salvation is from the Lord. He also highlights the type of redemption, the type of salvation that this coming king would bring. He says, Bethlehem is too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. There's likely a military significance behind that verse. Too little to be counted among the battalions of Judah. Bethlehem can't even muster an army. They don't send warriors. They don't have any warriors to send. This figure isn't going to be a warrior because that wasn't the salvation that Israel needed. They didn't need someone to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. They needed a shepherd. They needed one who relied upon the strength and the power supplied to him from on high. And so this coming king would be more young David than Saul, more Abraham than Nimrod, more shepherd than hunter. For that's what David was, the great shepherd of Israel. And you can hear the tenderness of this coming king towards his sheep. Verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. That lovely little possessive pronoun his flock opens up a beautiful intimacy between king and people the intimacy of uniquely belonging to this shepherd we are his flock we are his people we are the object of his tender care what does a shepherd do for a flock he tends to the wounded he binds them up he leads them in paths of life He finds them pasture. He retrieves them when they wander and ensures that they stay on the broad way. In other words, he is the opposite of everything that Israel's rulers were currently doing to God's people. The leaders who were constantly exploiting, constantly destroying, using their authority to line their pockets and in so doing, leading God's people woefully astray. Not so with the coming king. On a certain level, I sympathize with those who are disillusioned with earthly leaders. Israel had every reason to be, but they weren't called to scrap the whole notion. They were called to fix their gaze upon the promised ruler, upon the coming king, and therein take their delight and their hope. For this coming shepherd would show true care. 
would show true love. Why? Because we belong to Him. We are His flock. That's the point that Jesus makes in John 10, isn't it? He says there are thieves who come to steal and to kill and destroy. And there are hired hands who come and yet run off when they see the wolf coming. And then there's the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came that His people would have life in abundance. Who came to lay down His life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about the intimacy that opens up with that. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Is there any more intimate knowledge between two persons than between the Father and the Son? And Jesus says this reasonably structures the relationship, the knowledge, the intimacy, the love, the care, the concern, the genuine concern for our well-being as He looks at us his flock. His coming shepherd king is even more striking next to the figure that we meet in verse 6. The land of Assyria, the land of Nimrod. Assyria was perhaps the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. And she found her origins in the near mythic figure of Nimrod, the mighty hunter. You can read about him in Genesis 10. You can look at the ancient depictions of Syrian kings that we still have to this day. They were towering figures. They were engaged in terrible feats of heroic violence, slaying the unruly masses with their near-godlike swords. Mighty hunters descended from Nimrod the hunter. What sort of kingdom would you expect him to build? We know... We saw in Assyria vast, terrible, forged in violence, the blood of others. Such was Assyria and every empire, every iteration of the kingdom of earth. And then you have Jesus, the shepherd, the kingdom of the hunter, contrasted with the kingdom of the shepherd. What sort of kingdom does he build? A kingdom of life and a kingdom of of peace. That's what we read even just a moment ago in John 20. Micah says the same thing. Verse 5, He Himself is our peace. Peace is the absence of curse and the presence of blessing. The absence of strife and the presence of life between two parties. Jesus came to establish this most excellent gift of peace. Between whom? Between a holy God and sinners who had offended. So much of Micah is about judgment. So much of Micah is about the sins of an unruly people and the coming righteous judgment of God. But what does Jesus Christ appear in that room and say? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at the wounds which brought you peace. Peace. Peace, he announces to them. Twice. This is the kingdom of the Messiah, a peace 
the presence of blessing, the absence of curse, not forged in the blood that a king took from others, but forged in the blood of a king who laid down his life for those who should have been cursed. This is the excellency of our king, that he loved you and died for you, that he became a curse for you so that only blessing would attend all of your days, a blessing which results and terminates in everlasting life. We get the hints of that life in the name Ephratha. It's related to the word Ephraim, which is the name of Joseph's youngest son. You know why Joseph named his youngest son Ephraim? He says, You shall be named Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Fruitfulness in affliction. Fruitfulness through affliction attends the reality of this Messiah. Such is the kingdom of the Messiah. The one hailing from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, fruitfulness has burst forth through his affliction. For in his death he was planted as a seed in the ground which died. And then burst forth in life of a different order and magnitude. Such that all the nations now take shade in the shadow of his branches. And now this is the nature of the ongoing kingdom of the Messiah, is it not? As the wonder that Christ alone can guarantee as this most excellent king is that all affliction serves fruitfulness. (laughs) That that which should issue forth in death under the gracious, redemptive reign of the Lord Jesus Christ only serves to bring about life to bring about that good fruit which the Spirit is bringing to pass as the harvest of the kingdom of the beloved Son. What a remarkable king who establishes peace at the cost of his blood, who brings about fruitfulness in the face of that which should yield death. And he's approachable. What king is approachable like our king? What king on earth Can you call upon and be certain of an audience? Who's the most significant person that you know? Who's the most important person that you know in the terms and the conditions of this earth? Likely you still have to make a phone call and hope they have time for you, I imagine. Unless it's like your mom. (laughs) My mom always takes my calls. The Lord Jesus Christ, the most remarkable person who has ever walked on this earth, comes to his people and says, I am gentle and lowly. Come to me. The great shepherd, the one who yields his life, the one for whom all creation was waiting, comes to his people. He says, I know you. You know me. (laughs) You can come to me. Come to me. You and I, we together... We can approach the Lord Jesus Christ at his gracious invitation. The throne that governs the cosmos is to us a welcoming throne of grace and mercy because our good shepherd sits upon it. And we are called to draw near and to receive from his all-sufficient hand.
This is one reason as Protestants we insist that there is no need to pray to anyone else. To do so is an offense to the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. As worthy as many a saint is, as worthy and excellent as the Blessed Virgin Mary is, none of them come close to the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, come to me. Come to me. Don't go to them. You come to me, and I give life, peace, joy, righteousness, contentment, indeed, eternal life. Everybody else, they're just beggars, just like we are, who have found the bread that comes down from heaven. Go to him, church, for he is your king, excelling all others, and he delights to welcome little children. What a marvelous king. But there's another layer to the portrait, isn't it? It's not all gentle and lowliness. (laughs) When the world hears of meekness and humility and lowliness and gentleness, what do they think? They think weakness, impotence, frailty. That's like mistaking ash for snow. It would be a terrible mistake to see and hear Christ say, I am gentle and lowly, and think he is weak and impotent. For it is his power and his strength that makes his gentleness and lowliness in the gospel of grace so astounding, so utterly remarkable. And for now, his power is on display in the gospel. And it is to save. But make no mistake, at his return, his power will be on display in the destruction of those who refuse the gospel for the salvation of his people. So we can consider last and more briefly, he is mighty to save. You can hear the threads of strength running through the text. Verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The prophets looked forward and they saw a coming king who possessed a different power altogether. Isaiah 11 sees the same figure and writes, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah's portrait, you can hear the seven-fold iteration of the Spirit, the divine measure of the Spirit upon this king, equipped with divine knowledge, divine power, and not just for a time, but resting upon him, empowering all that he does and says. And this is what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? We see the power of God on display both in terms of its magnitude and in terms of its purity. Isn't that what the Gospels are at pains to demonstrate? What does Jesus do? He heals. He feeds. He frees. He gives life. He forgives. He teaches. He has compassion. He shows pity. And each iteration of this power also attests the bewildering nature of its purity as it is poured out for those in need. A display of the glory of God. And not only that, 
How many iterations of this power does he charge the recipient to say nothing? Don't tell anyone what I've done for you. Now there's much that you can say about that, but not the least of them is the incredible confluence of true power and true humility. He does not raise his voice aloud. Man wants his name emblazoned upon everything he produces. That was the cry at the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? Come, let us make a name for ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He did not raise his voice. He entrusted himself to the Father who promised to glorify him. And this as a testimony of his loveliness. The Gospels are at pains to say no one has ever done the things that Jesus has done. Who has given sight to the blind? Who has made the lame walk? Who has restored the mute to speech? Who has given the gift of hearing to the deaf? The choicest iteration of our gifts, sight, thought, health, restored by the one who had all authority and power given unto him. There has never been anyone like the Lord Jesus Christ. And his kingdom and his ministry endure forever. Down to this very day, as Micah here envisions. That's how he goes on and closes in these strange two verses of 5 and 6. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds, and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Calvin explains this strange picture. He says, The prophet here, taking a part for the whole, means by the Assyrians all the enemies of the church, whoever they may be. And so Micah continues to picture the kingdom of the coming Christ, and he envisions the Christ setting up under shepherds in his kingdom as the church outlasts every single nation that rises and falls. The kingdom of the Messiah stays, continues. Imagine what Israel would have felt when they looked out from the wall at the juggernaut that was Assyria. I mean, a massive military complex that staggers the imagination. They would have looked out and they would have said, this nation is never going to fall. There is no way anyone is ever going to beat this nation, outlast this nation. The next day, they were turned into dust. The following month, the king was killed by his very own sons. And the downward descent of Assyria began. And Babylon came to power. Israel remained. Daniel found himself in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Babylon disappeared. And he found himself in the court of Persia. (laughs) Babylon disappeared. Persia came. God's people looking to him. And then they fell. And Alexander arose. Greece came. God's people remained. Then Greece fell. And then Rome arose. God's people remain. Rome fell. I don't know the whole history of the ancient world, but I know the continuity is those who trust in the living and true God in the face of every other iteration of grass and flowers. 
So Micah looks forward and he sees a juggernaut assailing God's people. It's a faceless juggernaut. Whoever the enemies of God's people are, the one thing that God's people can know is they're not going to outlast the kingdom of the sun. <laughs> For the kingdom of the sun remains forever. But what is the sword that Christ supplies these under-shepherds with? I think that's an important point to note. He says that they're going to shepherd these nations with the sword. What sword does Christ supply these rulers to care for His people and to triumph over the nations? I can assure you it's not the physical sword. <laughs> and you should be glad about that, because looking out on you, like we, we wouldn't stand a chance. And that was actually Peter's mistake. Children, do you remember what Peter did? What did Peter do when they came to arrest Jesus? He pulled his sword, and he chopped off an ear. And what did Jesus say? He says, stop! If I wanted to fight, I would not have picked you. You are terrible with the sword. You missed his throat by nine inches. If it was a physical fight I wanted, I would call for a superior army. It wouldn't be you, Peter. It wouldn't be us. And we can be glad for that. The subjects of this king, the citizens of the kingdom of God, we are not in a physical fight. We do not contend with flesh and blood. Thus, we need a sword that can contend with our non-flesh and blood foe. So what else could this sword be? It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. He pictures the ministry of the Word here going forth, continuing, as Paul says, to dismantle strongholds. For we take thoughts and minds captive as we exalt the risen Christ, as we exalt the ascended Christ, as we exalt the truth of God as that wisdom hidden from the beginning. That's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 6. And seven, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for right hand and for the left. That's our equipment. Did you hear it? I mean, from the one angle we can say, as Paul does in Ephesians 6, stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's a clothing oneself in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he gives a more practical picture of what it looks like. The outworking, the outward face of such armor. We commend ourselves in every way by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. That's how the church wins. That's how the church triumphs. For the ugly face of every other institution will inevitably have out, but the church is clothed in the beauty of her king. She partakes of the resurrection life of her king. Thus, by the Spirit, she reflects his loveliness. And it is that loveliness which attests to a power that the kingdoms of this world know not. And it is the power of God wielded by His Christ which is mighty to save. Micah sees from afar the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word. 
and the loveliness of character that the Spirit is beginning to work in earnest among us with those new creation fruits which Micah here envisions as that fruitfulness which will attend Messiah's reign. And that's what makes the church utterly unique. She truly participates in life and she endures forever. And the gifts that she is given endure forever because her king endure forever. All the other iterations are gone, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who stands. His ministry and His reign continues. All of it by a power and a life that will endure forever and will one day be all in all. There's nothing more plainly attesting the power of God on display in the Lord Jesus Christ is than the resurrection and ascension. Than that our King has taken His seat upon a throne that it utterly transcends the thrones that litter this sad world of woe. Christ endures forever. God's Word endures forever. The life that He has begun in us will endure forever. The gifts of this King do not fade. This kingdom does not fade. The loveliest gifts of this earth, as we considered this morning, even the good gifts of this earth, they all fade and vanish. The beauty of a sunrise is quickly noon and then nighttime. The wine and meat of feasting turns into the farewell embrace before you can even get your mind around what's happening. You blink and your children are grown and they're preparing your eulogy. It's enough to make you cry if there weren't something that remained, that endured, that stands. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Eternal life and peace, irrevocable, ratified in the blood of the Son shed for us. The greatest King, the greatest gifts established forever. Church, that's your King. That's your Sovereign. You have a better Sovereign than Nikolai. A better Sovereign than Lancelot. Delight that you are a servant of this matchless King. And know that He is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are in awe at the testimony of your goodness, grace, and mercy in supplying us with such an excellent king. We deserve the kings of this world who are willing to shed blood and fortify kingdoms in cruelty. For our hearts know cruelty, they know greed, they know pride. And if you left us to yourself, Father, left us to ourselves, such would be our end. Yet you have seen it fit to place over us an excellent and matchless King in whose reign we have life, to whom we belong as a special possession, as a, as a sheep belongs to a shepherd, as a little lamb belongs to one who loves it and cares for it. We thank you for these things, Lord. May they be a great encouragement unto us. May they 
issue forth in hope and endurance as we continue in the midst of affliction with the confidence that it will result in life for such is the nature of Christ's reign on behalf of his people. These things we ask for his sake. Amen.